We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, everyone. And hi, Craig. How are you going? Well, thanks, Courtney. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. So we have got a conversation with Dr. Danny Barrington coming up for everyone. And she is a, a fascinating and outgoing person and it's going to be a great conversation, I can feel. Um, she is a, a lecturer here at the School of Population and Global Health, uh, University of Western Australia, and she likes to talk about toilets. <laughs> yeah, toilets and uh, sanitation and menstruation and, yeah. Yeah, so all the topics that I know a lot of people might not want to talk about, but yeah. it is important and it is very interesting as mm. well, her, her perspective on, on research it, around this area. It is, and I think it... It's an area, like she says, that we need to talk about more because yeah. it does affect a lot of people and their well-being and their, you know, their health. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's obviously the topic is sanitation, but we haven't sanitised the conversation. <laughs> That's right. So, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, well, just to get started, first of all, welcome and thanks for joining us. It's really great to have you on. Welcome. Um, so I should mention that we're talking to Dr. Danny Barrington. Yeah. Um, who is a lecturer at the School of Population and Global Health. And you just want to give us a bit more of an introduction to what you do and who uh, you where are. You're at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am a lecturer in the School of Population and Global Health, um, but that's not what my training's in. Um, my formal training is actually as an environmental systems engineer and a chemist here at UWA. Um, what happened was that while I was doing my PhD, I got involved with Engineers Without Borders and started learning a lot more about how um, drinking water and wastewater are so key. Well, the way that we manage them is so key to human health. Um as well as environmental health and things, that I started getting more interested in the international development side of the public health engineering that I was doing and decided that when I did finish my PhD, I wanted to go work for the UN perhaps, um, definitely go overseas and actually see what, what it was like in low and middle income countries um, to see whether there was anything I could you know, contribute back. And I was really lucky to get a placement for 10 months when I finished my PhD in Nepal, working for Nepal Water for Health. And that was really working with an NGO there to, uh, what's the, the best way of explaining it? <laughs> um, so Nepal Water for Health worked with communities to develop water supply and sanitation systems. So the, the systems are designed by engineers, but they're largely built by communities and, and some staff members. And what they really wanted to do at that time was figure out a way of implementing water safety plans so that communities could identify where the risks were in their water supply and sanitation systems and how they could get sick from them. And so I went in there kind of as an engineer, but spent a lot of time 
working on relationships and talking to people and looking at behavioural change and, and how people interpret different risks in their systems. And that's when I became much more of a public health social scientist on top of the engineering uh, side of things. And so for the past um, probably almost 10 years now, um, I've worked very much at kind of that intersection of the public health engineering and the actual people um, participation social side of things, which is how I've ended up <laughs> back here in the School <laughs> of Population and Global Health. So yeah. that's the story there. Wow. Okay. So it's actually, I, I mean, I haven't met anyone else that has the crossover between engineering and, and population health. That's a very like unique uh, combination. And I also can't imagine any a child wanting to grow up and say, I want to work with water <laughs> sanitization. So yeah, yeah. it's good to like really hear that story. So I guess my question is, was engineering something that you always wanted to do and then you kind of fell into the, the sanitization or was it more of like an open, you didn't really yep. know what you're doing? Um, so I wanted to be a marine biologist, like yes. everyone of my generation, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in Rockingham, we did maritime studies and I did volunteering, counting seagrass and stuff. And um, then I heard about the uh, environmental engineering degree here at UWA and the ocean systems engineering oh, okay. um, and kind of steered me more towards that and I happened to have found out since my mum also was kind of like yeah engineering more jobs <laughs> oh yeah science. they do that they do that <laughs> um, didn't notice at the time yeah. um, and so I guess when I first went into uni I was much more in um, in terms of like protecting the environment I you know I, I volunteered part-time at the environment center in Rockingham and stuff um, and it was during my undergrad, because it's an environmental systems engineering degree here, I'm not sure if it still is, but it was, um, you really start looking at the social and the political side of how your engineering systems are actually working. Mm. And that's when I really got interested in the fact that we need to have good human health and environmental health if we're actually going to achieve anything. And the fact that if you're an engineer, you actually have to engineer for people, even if you like to pretend it's all happening in a black box, it's not. Um, so that's when I kind of got more interested in the people side of things. And because um, we do particularly quite a bit of wastewater treatment stuff at UWA in that area, um, started learning a lot more about the impacts of poor water quality on people's health. Um, and that's kind of what then steered me down that route of trying to protect people and the environment's health. Mm. Mm. Now, if we go back a couple of steps, I believe you've got a bit of experience in pantomime as well. Yes. <laughs> I um, So I lived at Curry Hall, which is now University Hall, when I was an undergrad. And in my first year, uh, we had a couple of um, students visiting from Uni of Bristol, I think, and uh, they not condes, they convinced us all to put on a pantomime. And yep. then the next semester, we'd all loved it so much, we founded the the UWA Pantomime Society. So that's yeah. how. Awesome. <laughs> I, I know a, a couple of people uh, who have been a part of that uh, Pantomime Society and I know that they all loved it. Um, what was the first play called? Um, what was it? Uh, the Search for Peter Pan's Nether Nether Region. <laughs> okay. So, wait, I'm sensing a theme here. You know, <laughs> you're in sanitisation with water and now you're talking about nether regions. It all seems to kind of go around yeah. that area for you. <laughs> okay, talk about taboo stuff. I think that when I was doing Panto, I was doing it because I just loved I had so much fun doing it. Yeah. Um, not just like being on stage, but being around fun people. And I was a producer at some point and a president at some point. Um, 
But then realised later on once I started giving lectures and stuff that actually being able to get up and make a fool of yourself in front of people and not take it so seriously is a really useful way of talking about these kinds of topics. Um, mm. And, you know, sometimes when people get a bit uncomfortable, it is more fun for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So before we get on to talking specifically about your research and there's a couple of really great things you've got going on, mm-hmm. um, do you just want to talk a little bit about this, the teaching you're doing at the moment? Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I teach, at the moment I'm teaching on the um, undergraduate population health major. Um, I teach in the first year unit, which is an introduction to health and illness in populations. And then I also teach in um, research design and methods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I teach both the qualitative and the quantitative side of things, which is pretty yeah. interesting yeah. for students. And, and is that a passion of yours, having that mixed methods in your in your research as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So because I was an engineer to begin with, I'd never really known anything about qualitative research. Mm. Um, I mean, I knew that it existed, but I didn't understand how you could systematically do it really mm. um, until uh, my postdoc, which was after I'd been to Nepal, and I started learning about participatory action research and how you actually can go and um, you know, collect qualitative data and interviews and systematically sort out all of that data and code it and analyze it in that way. And I really love that. I think maybe that's my engineering brain is like, you can do it systematically, but you get to go so deep into people's opinions and experiences that I wasn't getting out of my cyanobacteria in a way you want to And that was your PhD, yeah. right? Yeah. Which was really cool yeah. when I was doing it, but I, you know, I wasn't passionate about it. Like I am more yeah. about what I'm doing now. So you're really interested in the story behind the results, essentially. Yeah. What, how, how do these results happen yeah. and why? Yeah. 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 Okay. Very interesting. Um, so obviously equity and the, you know, the developing world and whatnot is a big focus for you. Mm-hmm. So why don't you start off just letting us know um, which projects you've got that uh, focus on those areas in particular? Yeah, so ones yeah. I'm doing at the moment. Mm. So I've got a project which is looking at <laughs> it's if anyone knows anything about trying to get ethics approved, you'll be like <laughs> absolutely shocked when I tell you. Yeah. We are looking at incontinence in children aged um, five to 11 in refugee contexts. Yep, I can see that being <laughs> tough for ethics. Yeah. Um, so in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, which is where a lot of Rohingya refugees are, we're working okay. with UNICEF and World Vision. So that's Uh-oh. from Myanmar. The, the yep. Rohingyas. Yep. yep. Okay. And then we're also working in northern Uganda, um, mostly with people coming down through the Sudan um, with Plan International over there. Yeah. Um, where we are at, at the moment is COVID has made it very hard, obviously, to do any sort of travel, but we've um, the local teams have contextualised all the tools that we want to use because we want to work with um, children to understand their experiences of incontinence. And incontinence includes bedwetting at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is anecdotal evidence to suggest that um, in a few different refugee settings around the world that children are bedwetting later because they believe because of the trauma of, okay. of being in these Oh, okay. Settings, oh, yeah, I was right? going to ask why specifically refugee yeah. groups for that because, like, from my very basic understanding, um, everyone at some point, goes through it so why is it a problem well the, the, the training yeah and, yeah okay. toilet training and everything yeah yeah um and we also decided you know you could talk to parents and we will talk be talking to parents as well but we went through the whole ethical not conundrum but you know a lot of back and forth and reading and I have a PhD student working on this and really decided that 
we need the story from the children of what their experiences are and it can't just be, well, it's too hard to get under Mm -hmm. 18's Mm -hmm. permission. Um, So we've developed this cool, mostly my PhD student, I should say, (laughs) developed a cool method um, of creating a an imaginary storybook character who oh, has nice. incontinence um, and then we'll be running focus groups with different age children and split up boys and girls and things um, so at the moment we're very much um, just organizing the training for that to happen in the next few weeks so that's probably the biggest the project that I'm leading mm-hmm. that causes the most stress in my life but it's very interesting. <laughs> can, can, can I just ask how that project came about how did you identify that as an issue mm. in the first place so <laughs> It's only been probably in the last five, four or five years in water and sanitation sector that um, people have started talking about incontinence. And it's been one of those things where I think because of Panto and everything, I'm willing to get up and, and talk about it. And there's a couple of other people in my sector who are also very outspoken and we, we'll talk about it to anyone and trying to get it on the radar. Um, and part of that was that the well, – Part of what happened then was with us talking about it at conferences and doing some small-scale work. I had a student who looked at it in Zambia, the incontinence just generally, um, and then a student from another university who looked in Pakistan. And just from those emerging findings where we were saying, look, it's quite common and it's not something that we're considering in our water and sanitation programs properly. Um, Elra, um, who run the Humanitarian Innovation Fund, they actually put out a call a couple of years ago to specifically look at incontinence in emergency situations. Um, and so we obviously went for that pot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, our project has been funded. There's one that's looking in, I think, Ethiopia and Malawi, but I know that countries have changed a bit because of COVID mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and they're looking specifically at older people with incontinence. And there's also a project in Ghana which is looking at uh, incontinence caused by fistula, which is quite common in certain parts of Africa in terms of women who um, have young childbirths or prolonged childbirths and end up with tears which cause okay. fecal and um, urinary incontinence. So they're kind of the three yep. projects that are going and, on in and there. what are the uh, flow-on effects of incontinence? That's what I was going to yeah. ask because well, like, I'm finding it confusing to relate sure. sanitization <laughs> to incontinence. And yeah. I, like, I, I've kind of got this link in my head but I'm not 100% yeah, sure like, obviously what the consequences yeah. are. Some yeah. consequences to that, and I'm sure physical and mental. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so if we're thinking about access to toilets and water and things, if you are someone who experiences incontinence, you are going to have greater washing needs, not just for yourself but for your bedding and for right. your clothing and everything. Mm-hmm. Right. If you – there's also something called social incontinence, and that's people – who there's, there's kind of two, two ways that plays out, people who are either like – I won't leave the house because I don't know where a toilet is and I'm worried, even if I um, actually don't have any physical evidence of incontinence. Yep. Um, but then also things like you might have children who decide, who are wetting the bed at night but they might be awake and the reason they're doing that is because they don't want to go and use the toilets because they don't feel they're safe, mm-hmm. for example. So for us, I guess... So we talk about the sector as water, sanitation and hygiene. So we do bring in things like incontinence and menstrual health and things. So um, looking at people needing extra water supplies for cleaning and washing but also needing a place where they feel safe to go to the toilet Mm -hmm. Um, and really trying to understand if people aren't using the toilets, is it because of an incontinence problem? Is it because of a physical or an emotional problem or is it a rational decision because they're worried they'll be raped if they go to the toilet? Mm -hmm. Like we've got to make sure that 
before we just threw the engineering solution of, oh, well, look, we've made you a nice new toilet. <laughs> Is that actually the problem? Yeah. Yeah. And so you're pre fairly preliminary in your um, project at the moment, I'm assuming? Yeah. I or mean, there's not very much that's been done on incontinence in lower middle-income countries. Mm -hmm. There's a lot being done by comparison in higher-income countries. There's a lot around, you know, surgical techniques and things. And there's still a long way to go, I think, particularly in terms of the non-medical research of, of actually looking at the people-based management and stuff. Um, but in a lot of lower middle-income countries, incontinence is considered even by some medical professionals is just something that happens and you can't deal with it. And there's lots of actual, like incontinence is a symptom of many different um, diseases and mental illnesses as well. Um, so it's not just one thing that causes it. Um, and a lot of people just live with it, not realizing that you can, you can actually improve the situation. Mm. Okay, so that so that's kind of like one aspect of like, sanitization and hygiene problems in uh, lower and middle income countries. Is that one of the main ones, or are there other bigger areas for sanitization for these countries that could also help tackle these problems? Yep. So I mean, this is a I don't want to say it's a small issue because yeah. it's something like fifty percent of women will experience incontinence at some point, and even thirty percent of men. I think. Right. Um, it's it's kind of hard because it's not something people like talking about. So a lot of the studies, like the error margins, are huge. It'd be the mm -hmm. same as like like finding out prevalence of drug use. Like yeah. people yeah. don't want to talk about social, it. <laughs> social desirability. Bias. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I and I yeah. have a we have a paper that just been accepted subject to minor revisions, so yeah. we'll be out soon, and it's essentially where. The survey asked people, do your kids have incontinence? And everyone said no. But then when they had to ask whether their children who were older needed nappies or bedpans and things, they said yes. And so kind of saying we actually don't know how big an issue it is and we're not, mm. are we asking in the right way anyway? So, yeah, incontinence is definitely an issue. Um, but just generally uh, the fact that there's so many people in the world who don't have access to decent um, toilet at the moment and particularly we you know we've definitely come a long way we're, we're doing well in terms of um, is that the proportion of people in the world with the population rising we're still mm. kind of getting on top of it with sanitation mm -hmm. um, but I mean even in Australia we don't not everyone has safely managed sanitation mm. so we used to really focus on what we call now basic sanitation which is making so sure that somebody has a toilet to use but not really thinking beyond that. So you'd have, for example, communities I've worked with in Fiji who have a flush toilet, um, but the flush flushes outside their house <laughs> to um, an area which is, this is communities um, who are living in quite impoverished conditions, but yeah. where the land they're living on is tidally inundated. It's You've got industrial effluent and then you've also got human waste that, you know, they've met the the point of having a flush toilet, yeah. But you got to do something with that waste afterwards. Yeah. Um, and having said that, it's it's an interesting um, interesting point you raised, Craig. I think in terms of the uh, well being side of things, because you know, having at least they do have that toilet where they feel that they can go in a dignified manner and have the door shut as opposed to openly defecating. On the street, but yeah. from a pathogen perspective, yeah. it's probably mm. not 
much better. M- much yeah. better, yeah. So it's still out in the open. Yeah, it's yeah. still ready to there. spread disease. <laughs> so now, as of like with the sustainable development goals, we want safely managed sanitation, which means that actually people have somewhere to go, mm-hmm. but then also we do something with that excreta so it doesn't co- go and get into mm. contact with people again. Yeah, because it's not uncommon in some of these developing countries to see people openly going to the toilet in the street. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I know even knowing Outback Australia, it's been known to happen amongst young kids and, and that sort of mm. thing. Oh, and with COVID, it's happened a lot because the public toilets have been closed. Mm. Um, oh, particularly I didn't even in the think UK, it's been really bad because mm. they let people go out for walks and stuff, but all the public toilets are shut. Shut, yeah. And so, wow, yeah. that just seems like it makes sense that they do that initially, but. Yeah. Mm. No, <laughs> it just sounds bad. <laughs> it goes back to like the 17th century in London yeah. or something when they used to have the horse and cart go around and pick up all yeah, the night waste. soil. Yeah, yeah and I mean, there's lots of places um, where people might have a toilet at their house, but they prefer to go out in the open for mm. a variety of different reasons. Mm. Fresh air. Um, fresh air. Yeah. Um, actually, have seen a couple of different studies at least which show that often. Um, there are areas where men like to show off the size of their shit ah. because it means they're being fed well by their wives. <laughs> um, I don't think that that is, like, the most common reason. No. But, you know, I've seen a couple of primary data sources. Of that. Well, there, there is some, um, I mean, even I've heard of this, like the app, uh, you can get on your phone where you can take photos of your poop and compare it to other people's okay. poop. Like, it just... Yeah, it's a big thing. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, my, yeah, I used to live in Germany for a while, and in Germany they actually have the, the step yeah, on the toilet, yeah. so oh. it'll catch whatever you've dropped in it, so you can inspect it for health reasons to see if there's something that, that shouldn't yeah. be in there. Mm. Or, yeah, well, uh, that's yeah. important. You know, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I do know that in um, uh, yeah, outback Australia, because um, mm. I, I know a couple of people that do some like full driving trips and mm. they go and fix the toilets on like canning stock route and things like that and yep. i know they've been to a bunch of rural communities that don't have any mm. form of sanitization mm. or anything like that so yeah it's definitely even a problem here in australia as someone who camps a fair bit um how sanitary are these long drop toilets <laughs> um <laughs> well i mean it's okay as long as they're containing all the waste it's not such an issue yeah um there is a problem with some of the, the composting toilets, maybe not as much in camping grounds, but places where people stop just for a wee on the side of the road because mm-hmm. the compost toilets actually require the feces as well because they need the nitrogen-phosphorus carbon ratio, right? Okay. So if everyone is just jumping off the bus to have a wee when they're going their way to Uluru, um, you just end up with an overflowing <laughs> urine tank right. essentially right. <laughs> right, okay. that doesn't process the waste. Yeah, okay. So. Interesting. There you go. Interesting. Yeah. This, this is the side of uh, health and, <laughs> and uh, engineering that you don't normally think of, well, isn't it's it? It's really right. interesting yeah. because everyone experiences this on a daily mm. basis but no one talks about it. So, friends, yeah. Yeah, and from, from my understanding as well, um, in terms of the biggest scientific impact on global health, sanitization is number one. Yeah, so that was um, – uh, n- I'm not sure about this on, on the quantitative side of things, but in terms yeah. of readers of the British Medical Journal, in 2007 they voted the sanitary revolution as the greatest medical advancement 
since yeah. 1840. Yeah, and it, mm. and it's because it managed to just reduce that like infection and things like that and mm. um, like diseases that you can get. Mm-hmm. So there's less exposure to all of your, your, yeah. your fecal yeah. matter and things and like that. People aren't dying yeah. young. They're yeah. not um, being stunted in their growth. Mm. Yeah. It's what's allowed us to have longer lifespans and um, and also if you have chronic diarrheal infections and things as a child, it stunts your cognitive development. Mm-hmm. Um which just then goes on to this cycle of um, of poverty in a lot of places. And so you'll see now that um, we're so much taller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like we yeah. live a lot longer and we're much taller and a lot of that is to do with sanitation yes. and you'll yep. see in a lot of um, other countries the children are stunted both physically in terms of height and cognitively. Mm. Right. So even oh, if they yeah, survive okay. the diarrhoea. Yeah. Yeah, mm. longer term. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I guess you, we like. I think there was a Hungarian doctor that is credited with finding out that it was doctors that were killing um, mothers during pre- during childbirth because they weren't washing their hands. Surgeons. Oh, yeah. oh right, yeah. And he actually yeah. got put in a in a, a mental hospital because they thought he was crazy oh, for saying right. this. Yeah, yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. But he's credited with you know hand washing oh, as, hand a, washing. Yeah. as a yeah as a like also practice. big big um. Publicity for our sector in the last year. Oh, absolutely! I think everyone's washing their hands. We've—I have had a couple of um uh, people give me theories that like our generation, when we're ninety, are going to avidly be washing our hands every half an hour, whereas the like younger generations aren't going to be as strict anymore and things like that. Um, mm. Yeah, don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so you've done um this work in Nepal. Oh, actually, I had another question about the imaginary story. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly is that going to work? So uh, this is just referring back to the previous conversation about the, the story um, and incontinence and, and children. Mm-hmm. Um, is So you've created a character and are the children that you're interviewing going to, like, fill in responses for, for this um, imaginary character or story or, or how exactly is that going to work? So they're going to uh, develop the character themselves. It's probably because oh, if you're in a group okay. of boys aged five to eight sort of thing, yeah. the character's probably going to be a boy aged five to eight. Yeah. We think it's too sensitive to have kids identifying their own um, experiences but that we could still learn quite a bit from understanding how they perceive if a child were to wet themselves, for example. Right, because they'd be putting their own ideas yeah. onto their character. Which might be their idea of how they would tease that character yeah Mm -hmm. or it might be how they would feel if they were that character and we start by talking about you know this character who has a name that they've come up with um they've woken up and they've wet the bed um what happens next when their parents find out and try and find out what is what do you think is the thing that is going to happen and you know then later they go to school and they wet their pants and what happens there you know what's the reaction of teachers and other students and things um because it is so preliminary like we're trying to understand how big an issue it is Mm. um i mean there are people out there trying to do the the real prevalence stuff Mm -hmm. and we're trying to look at what are the other issues as well yeah Mm. so i guess just to round this bit of the conversation off uh is the end kind of aim of this to look at what I guess physical and psychosocial interventions might be needed to address whatever the root cause of this issue is yeah so I mean this is it is being funded as like as a pilot to try and have a little bit of an understanding of how big an issue this is um and whether the storybook methodology could work in terms of actually getting these um learning more about the issues in other areas um and then also at the same time trying to figure out 
is it to do with lack of facilities and mm-hmm. things? Is it mainly to do with the stigma attached to it? Mm-hmm. You know, where where is it that people are getting the most of the the distress side of it yeah, okay. from? So yeah, so that then we can actually look at what are the how you can rectify solutions. that. Yeah. yeah, okay. And uh, moving on, then what what is wash? Wash is uh, just stands for water, sanitation, and hygiene. Okay. Um, yeah. So we tend to think about. Drinking water and bathing water and cooking water and that kind of washing water. Um, sanitation, generally we're talking about um, wastewater, excreta, uh, shit, <laughs> drainage, <laughs> uh, environmental yeah. sanitation, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sanitation and hygiene kind of, they're very blurred between them. So we think about um, solid waste and, and rubbish in general. Um, but also thinking about menstrual health and incontinence and things as well. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of grown tentacles over the years because I think <laughs> it used to be very much like wash was, it was actually called Watsan, which is water and sanitation, and it was very about the engineers building the toilets and the pipes. Right. And then now it's become much more um, how you actually bring that participation in and what people are interested in. And then as... My understanding of it is as more women engineers kind of got into wash, um, people started thinking, hey, hey, I should probably think about menstruation in amongst mm. this because so often that's something that is associated with toilets and hygiene mm. um, and just kind of gone by the wayside before. Yeah, so so what's your um, input in the area of menstruation and, and wash then? What do you do? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I Big mean... Big question. <laughs> I think that we need to make sure that, that we are considering menstruation in any sanitation programs and hygiene programs, definitely for sure. Um, kind of things like I a few years ago there was a standard being developed for a non-sewered sanitation option, so for a non-sewered toilet essentially. And one of the things I was pushing for on this international standard was that um, we needed to have some consideration of what's going to happen with menstrual um, products, for example, if people decide they're going to flush them down the toilet, mm-hmm. which people do in Australia and people do that everywhere. Even though I feel like there's so many signs yeah. that tell you not to do this that. This is the thing, right? Yeah. And this is what feeds into the my annoyance in this story yeah. and why I'm now doing some of the things I do is um, the heap of the, like the engineers who were involved were like, well, we just all we're going to say is you've got to put a sticker on the toilet that says, don't flush anything and it'll be fine. Yeah, but that's confusing in <laughs> itself. It's like, don't flush anything. All oh, yeah, right, sorry. so I can't flush. Yeah, but no, there are some stickers that are like that because yeah. I've seen it where it says, don't put anything other than like your fecal matter in there and like, well, what, that toilet mm. paper? Yeah. And, you know, they don't. So, yeah, they, the, they don't the toilet paper it. thing is interesting in different countries because yeah. different plumbing can deal with toilet paper or True, not. Yeah. Um, so, that has confused many a tourist. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, so essentially it was this where people are rational. If we tell them not to flush menstrual materials, they won't. And I'm like, no. We've got bins here and people still choose to flush, you know. Yeah. And we've also got like embarrassed teenagers that don't know what to do with any of that yeah. stuff for the first time and things like that. So. so I think my some of my biggest interests in this um, side of things is is looking at why do people do what they do in terms of um, menstrual health uh, in a few different areas. But um, a PhD student and I at the moment have a paper in review that's that we went and reviewed all of the different reasons that people gave for how they dispose of menstrual materials um, or how they um, 
wash their menstrual materials if they used reusables and that kind of thing. Very, very little data in high-income countries. We found like two studies. Um, we found quite a lot more in low- and middle-income countries where there's been a lot of interventions done. Mm. And really what the point we were trying to make there, and it was triggered by my experience as the engineers, <laughs> was people don't make rational decisions about what they do with these taboo waste products, and I'm sure it's similar with incontinence products as well. Um, and actually going, okay, well, if you're an engineer and you're going to design a system where there will be menstruators using it, what are the things that you really need to consider in terms of people's behaviour and, and what drives their different decisions? Um, and so that that's the bit that I, I think I'm most interested in is how do you make sure that the engineering matches up with what people want? And a lot of people will say, oh, well, we do, we do community consultation, it's fine, but the way the quality of that consultation mm. can be very variable. You can have a 60-year-old male public health um, practitioner who's like, oh, well, I spoke to some teenage girls, so now they know what to do. And, <laughs> yeah. and not realise in their mind that maybe that wasn't appropriate. No. <laughs> the reason that's funny is because you've met someone who's done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've, all, we've all met yeah, someone. Yeah, we, we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so just... Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, like, that's what I'm really interested in is how how can we actually make sure that in terms of menstrual health, people are able to manage it in the way that they're really comfortable with. Um, so yeah. what, what were some of the reasons for people, I guess, going against the grain and not using the, the bins or things like that? So like what are some of the reasons? Um, well, I mean, people... It's a lot around secrecy, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's I don't want anyone to know that I've got my period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, is a big is a big one. Um, sometimes it's if there is a belief in certain types of um, superstitions that someone could use your menstrual blood to to do magic on or oh, such, yeah. or in areas where um, menstrual literacy is low, and you know there can be an assumption sometimes that if a girl is menstruating, that means that she's sexually active. And there can be fathers who believe that, um, there can be mothers who believe that, um, who, so there is actually a punishment if you people find out. So it can be embarrassing right. or it can actually be terrifying because you can be punished for the fact that you have a period. Um, and I think that that's, that kind of brings us to the conundrum that we currently, we work on a lot in this area is that on the one hand, you want to make sure that there are, as private facilities as possible and on the other hand shouldn't have to be like that we yeah. need to change the stigma mm. that surrounds menstruation so um yeah it's a, a bit of a balancing act yeah, yeah. so it's it's almost like because like i definitely understand having the the private um, part of of when you have your period and you need to go to the bathroom and things like that um, and then also the, the stigma associated and where it shouldn't have to be like that so it's almost like the short-term solution is to create the the privacy necessary and then the long term is to get rid of the the stigma mm -hmm. so um where was I going <laughs> I've forgotten where I was going, well, but that's whilst, whilst you're gathering your thoughts, yeah. I'll share an experience <laughs> that I had when I was in Bali and I went to visit a, a well-known temple with my partner and there was a big sign saying a list of things that people that couldn't go in and one of them was menstruating women. And we asked the taxi driver why that was and he said that in their 
religion, they consider women to be dirty while they're menstruating. And so that's why they weren't allowed into this sacred place. But how could they tell? Well, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how they could tell. <laughs> well, there, actually, there was a big um, uproar a couple of years ago because there were some temples in India where they banned women altogether because they couldn't tell. Um, and so there were big protests of mm. women. Um, whether they believed that they should or shouldn't be able to enter when they were menstruating, they didn't mm. believe they should be banned all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not... It's, it's not just in Balinese culture. Mm. Um, it's a hu huge amount of religions that have sanctions on menstruating women. Okay, because I think that was a Hindu temple, the one I went mm. to. So I'm assuming in yeah. like Muslim temples might have the same. Yeah, um, I mean, there's actually there are things that you're banned from doing in Jewish culture, in okay. um, various um, Christian cultures. Mm. Um, and then there's also areas like, because I've worked quite a bit in the South Pacific, where people often have um, are a Christian but also have some different islander beliefs mixed in there and will believe that if you use the same toilet as a menstruating woman that you'll become infertile and these kind of things as right. well. Okay, so, so I remembered my yeah. question. Um, okay. How do you change that stigma? associated with it. I think that's the thing that we're struggling with the most is that no there's not been any real research that's tried to figure out how to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> um so I've just finished a big review of all the qualitative research um looking at experiences of menstruation in high income countries and when you look at the research in low and middle income countries and you look at the stuff you're seeing in the news now about how we can solve period poverty, it's all about making sure that anyone who menstruates has access to menstrual materials. Um, and, you know, we have some ideas of how to do that. We actually haven't, you know, actually giving out free menstrual materials is quite a new thing even in high income countries. Mm -hmm. So. There's only been a few pilots going on recently anyway to look at how you can do that and what impact it has on people's lives and whether that is actually what's stopping girls going to school yeah. or if that's just anecdotal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the stigma around menstruation, there's been quite a bit of research by people in gender studies and things about how bad it is and, and how bad the situation is, but there's not really been any studies looking at how can we change that. Right. Um, so I, I guess at the moment the best action seems to be is going talking about it more getting it in the media it is yeah. definitely talked about more yeah um and i do think that younger generations are more becoming more and more open about it yeah so. there's, there's a bit of uh, so discourse around the economics of it so in australia um period products are still subject to the gst which mm -hmm. there's been debate about whether they should or shouldn't be and it seems pretty clear that that would be one step you could take to yeah so they actually got rid of that last year i think oh, the year before but okay. there, yeah there was a lot of it was huge yeah. lobbying for that, that. Yeah. Yeah. and i was interviewed on a radio program once and the, the guy was like so unconvinced he was like that's like no amount of money that's a tiny amount of money <laughs> but it could be enough yeah. Yeah. yeah and you're just like but it's also like a human rights thing like yeah. clearly if you're going to take the tax off of condoms you can take it off with pads exactly <laughs> it seemed kind of like a no-brainer yeah. the other thing is i understand you did some work up in leeds is that right in the uk yep yeah. so i was based in leeds before so just a bit further north of that in scotland i think they brought in a policy where people can get free access mm -hmm. to period products yep. these days yeah, yeah which is probably an extra step you know mm. that australia maybe will end up there one yeah day. so in um i think it's victoria I always get mixed up between Victoria and New South Wales because we want to. Um, a colleague of mine wants to get some funding to look at um, across the two the differences they're saying. Um, 
I think the Victorian government have said in a select amount of schools they're going to provide free menstrual mm. products. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and they're going to trial it and see what happens. Um, pretty much the first trial of um, that, you know, where they actually recorded decentish data was in Aberdeen. Um, in Scotland um, a couple of years ago and trialled providing period products to homeless shelters, mm -hmm. domestic violence shelters um, and, you know, people might not have been staying there but places where people were accessing those kind of products. And they also tried giving people, um, I'm pretty sure in, the, when they, in that, that case they also tried giving people vouchers and things. Mm -hmm. And it was also quite interesting because even when people could have access to um free menstrual materials, there was still that, then there was the stigma of I need free menstrual materials. I don't like having to ask for them at the desk. So there's embarrassment there uh, yeah. of like even asking. Like I remember that as a teenager, I think, you know, in the first couple of years having my period. Yeah. It was just so embarrassing to go ask someone mm. um, or things like that or when I had people come up to me and ask whether I had anything that they could use. It, yeah, everyone's and, and just so it's, secret and it's and so stigmatised. Like, it is. So um, I was... A, I was a director of Share the Dignity um, before I went to the UK, so for a couple of years, and I was involved in the um, developing the dignity vending machines, which you see in a few places, particularly in, like, the emergency rooms at hospitals mm, and things, mm -hmm. um, which are free menstrual materials. And the thing is, like, those vending machines cost a lot to get made. Yeah. <laughs> And the, but the reason that they are there is because of, we're finding that women don't want to ask yeah. for products. So if you can get something and you can do it very discreetly and then you've, you've got what you need. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if we didn't have to spend so many thousands of dollars on the machine, we could buy a lot more products. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, that's that balancing the privacy and the stigma. We've got to yeah. work on both those things. It's, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of an image that you see like in popular culture, like an older woman quietly taking a young girl to one side and trying yeah. to pretend that they're just having a conversation and obviously we know what's going on but yeah. it's sort of like a taboo subject and, yeah, you've yeah. got to do that in private. Which and I always found fascinating mm -hmm. um, and I, I do remember um, so I went to a private girls' school so there was a lot of girls, you know. We all pretty much got our period at the same time. Um so there was like lots of conversations about like swimming because mm -hmm. you know, we went swimming lessons and yeah. half the girls wouldn't go do swimming lessons because they were on their period and things like that. Mm -hmm. But then we also had a, a brother school and I remember um, even a lot of the boys at, at that age were very freaked out by periods. Mm. So I would like always tell them uh, when I had mine or like describe what it was like and all this kind of stuff yeah, yeah, to you these boys. see a lot more of that in the recent literature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like the boy, they would be like cowering in the corner, like, please yeah, don't yeah. tell me this. Um, but I, I guess that's another important thing is it's not just about the women embracing yeah. it. It's also mm. about the well, men embracing it's, it. It's what's really interesting is because the the big review that I did, it essentially we went for from women who reached menarche, so first periods from 1900 to 2019, mm. something yeah. like that. Jeez. And, um, yeah, I mean there wasn't that much in the earlier literature. but There'd be like some sentences. And yeah, and, and things where it was particularly because you get a lot of people who did historical narrative work, so maybe in the 60s but they were interviewing older women kind of thing yeah um but this in a lot of cultures men were um taught about what, what menstruation is women were never actually taught what it was until they got married oh. so even oh, wow. though they might get their period and their mother might be like this is how you manage it 
like the actual reproductive side of things was not explained to you until your husband could mansplain it to you. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you think it's weird now when you hear that people who like don't learn about it in school. Mm. I went to school in the 90s and I'm like, okay, I I just expected everyone learnt about it at school. But there are still people who don't Mm. in in Australia and um, in Western countries. Yeah. Weren't paying attention during physical education. That's or. right. Well, they, they took the boys out of the room, so the boys never learned about it anyway. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard about that as well. Yeah. Um, Pretty unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so there was something else that you mentioned a bit earlier on, um, and that was uh, that higher-income countries like Australia, we don't have much research when it comes to, to periods and things like that, but also like there's minimal interventions. Whereas for lower income countries, there are, are much more interventions. In terms that, of providing products. Yeah, in terms of providing yeah. products. So mm. I get what are the, some of the things that have actually worked for lower income countries and maybe we could that do That we could here. think about, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's tricky because I don't yeah. think there's any silver bullet no, there no, either. Um, I think some of the cool things, it's like um, there's an NGO I've worked with a bit called iRise International and they work um, particularly in Uganda and in Australia and in the UK um, and their programs are very much about giving girls choice of a heap of different products mm-hmm. um, and those ones I think are probably seeing better um like longer-term sustainability when you actually have girls being able to choose what it is that they would like to use Mm, for their mm -hmm. their period. Um, There has been a huge focus on girls in school, which misses not only the fact that women have periods for a long time when they're not in school, (laughs) but also there's a lot of girls who aren't in schools in in low- and middle-income countries as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's really tough to say because there's a lot of stories out there about people creating these pad manufacturing businesses and hiring the local women or sending the pads over from Australia that mm-hmm. some women have made. And and everything is so, like, everything is done with good intentions but actually how sustainable these are and the fact that there's not been a lot of really robust research done on these, particularly like the micro-enterprise side of things. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's been a, quite a bit of research and randomised control trials in terms of giving out pads and things. Yeah. Um, but more sustainable long-term stuff, we don't really know. What sort of health outcomes are we trying to avoid by people not having access to these products? By giving them access to them? No, no, but so <laughs> we're trying to avoid certain things that would otherwise happen, right, by intervening. So, yeah, what, what, so is, I mean, what are the consequences of people not having yeah, access? Yeah, so reproductive them? tract infections okay. are one thing. Um, uh and that, that's quite interesting because there's this whole uh, debate, ongoing debate about if if a woman is using clean cloths, that's very different to using dirty rags. Yeah, so I guess like the context is women would use something else. Yeah. Um, instead okay. of, or they the would not leave, or, or they, they would just sit free there bleed and yeah, okay. and not be allowed to leave the house. Yeah. Often. So, yeah, okay. um, so you've got in terms of actual infections you're trying Mm -hmm. to stop reproductive tract infections by making sure that whatever material someone does use is actually clean um also making sure that they have the ability to be able to wash themselves generally so not just about having that product Mm -hmm. um which is something we also found interesting with incontinence was that 
you know, in the couple of studies that have been done so far, people are not interested in needing incontinence pads. People are interested in needing more soap and water. They actually yeah. want to be able to wash themselves yep. and things. Um, but also in terms of stopping um, people who have men- have people who menstruate from being able to engage in other activities yeah. and things like going to school. And there are places where they're not girls are not allowed to go to school and there are places where girls would choose not to go to school okay. um, because they have their period or because they can't conceal their that, period. That they've got it, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah no, it's an, obviously it's one of the major public health issues because it affects half or just over <laughs> yeah. half the population. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you have access <laughs> to much. products and things like... You still have to manage it in some way. And even if you free bleed, you're going to free, free bleed on other people's chairs or yeah. the bus yeah, or whatever. To, you're still going to manage something. Yeah, it's going to yeah, be an issue. So. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's an interesting one as well because um, I think the, the understanding of the different uses of products and free bleeding as well has kind of become more mm, common more knowledge mainstream, now. Yeah. It's more mainstream now. Mm. Um, and even though I probably will sound a bit more prudish um i still don't quite understand the idea of free bleeding or anything mm. like that um do you have any opinions on that or know anything no, it's, about it's, it's, it or no, it's, a, it's gonna be your own decision yeah it's it? just your own choice yeah okay. yeah and that we that we have talked friends in the sector and we talk about it because you're just like yeah i mean i don't want to get stains on my clothes i like mm. my clothes yeah <laughs> yeah i don't care if people know that i have my period but mm. i also don't want to bleed on everything yeah yeah okay yeah there's, no, there's been some interesting like photographic exhibitions that have documented that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah some amazing absolutely. stuff yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah there's some really good artwork and, pe- there, and people it. yeah using the menstrual blood for paintings and, and yeah, that sort of thing yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's that's definitely one way of getting people to talk about it. More. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what about uh, we've got like tampons and pads and things mm-hmm. like that, and then we've got the reusable stuff. So we've got like mm-hmm. the menstrual cups and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any benefit? In in areas where uh, tampons and pads and things are not socially acceptable with bunny ears, of giving more reusable stuff like re- reusable underwear and things like that, is that more of an option, or does like the hygiene come into play again? Um, so I think it's more about insertion methods. Yeah. That yeah. versus. Um, non-insertion methods yeah. rather than reusable versus disposable. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of places where it's. Um, it's just not accepted that women would use tampons or menstrual cups because they would have to touch themselves. Right. Um, often you would be allowed if you've had babies or if you've gotten married. Depends. Um, of course, not people might not know. <laughs> you can still do it mm. uh, <laughs> in a lot of places. It just depends how you, how you manage it. Mm. Um, there's definitely more of the, the menstrual underwear stuff, I think, is becoming a bit more popular. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to wash than reusable pads, for example. Yeah. Um, but it's very expensive. I mean, here it costs about $27 for a pair of undies. So, yeah. and then, so I think like a menstrual cup, you can easily see how quickly you recoup the costs. But mm. depending on how many days you need to wear the undies for and how often you have to replace them. Yeah. Because yeah. like reusable menstrual pads last like a year as opposed to a menstrual cup, which can last five to 10 years. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. And you can use mm. one cup for your entire period, whereas you need multiple pads and multiple undies. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
I think we're sort of getting towards the end, um, <laughs> yeah. but I was interested to see to hear a bit more about. You've had a couple of interesting experiences with journals that have, oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. have um, suggested that maybe developing world research isn't as important as the in the in the developed world. Um, yeah, I think you were invited to, to edit an issue once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want to speak a bit about that? Yeah, so. Um, some colleagues and I started something a couple of years ago called like the Wash Failures Initiative and trying to get people to admit when things go wrong in our research and in our programming because there seemed to be this kind of assumption that, well, we try and build toilets and if they don't work, then there's no harm done. But actually there's a lot of harm that can be done through our work. Um, just, you know, people can put their entire life savings into things which and then the NGO leaves and people are skint, Mm -hmm. Um, people fall into toilets that have not been built properly and drown, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were really keen to get um, to edit a special issue of a journal where we could get people to really send in their failure stories or their research stories of this was a great idea we thought but it didn't work. Because often in journal articles, you know, you don't, it's not as likely you'll get published and often you'll get desk rejected straight out mm-hmm. if the story you have to tell is not particularly interesting or you're saying, well, this is something that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the problem is that then someone else doesn't know that it doesn't work and keeps doing keeps it again. Doing it, yeah. And we were approached by a journal that um, asked us if we wanted to do a special issue and we know that they ask a lot of people these things, but we thought this is a pretty well-respected journal. We're going to um, take this opportunity to do it. And because we work in low- and middle-income countries, we really wanted to make sure that we could get um, some waivers for the open access fees so that we could hear from people who actually worked on the ground. And when I asked the journal for that, they said, well, you can have waivers, that's fine, but the waivers need to be prioritised to go to people from high-income countries. They need to be high-impact scholars who should have have a H-index of whatever and have published so much in the last few years. So essentially the people who actually have money to pay for open access. And we got very angry about this and tried to convince them to make an exception in our case and they wouldn't. Um, So then we went public with it um, and then started hearing a lot more stories um, from not just this journal but also that publishing house. Um, Some... Uh, colleagues were like, oh, we've managed to convince them otherwise just in this one case. And we're like, is that really good enough Um, if we're finding out that this is happening all around the world? And so, and I think that's what's really hard for people to grasp is that I think there are excellent papers in these journals and there are a lot of really good editors in in the the journals. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the the overall, um, there's, there's obviously something systemic going on there so it's not saying that every paper that they publish is crap or that everyone there is a racist um but there there was no attempt to try and get those voices to the table who really need to be heard um even though a lot of other uh, publishing houses now are engaged in something called research for life where um very low income countries get free um open access charges Mm -hmm. and others get um, for middle-income countries have a half price 
um, okay. thing. Yeah. Um, so it's like a pay what you can afford type. Yeah. yeah. And I, I oh, yeah. yeah. Like you go on about it, even just yeah. from the non low middle income country <laughs> side of thing yeah. as well. And in terms of journals and the fact that the higher impact journal, the more you have to pay. But yeah. it means that if you're an early career researcher and you can't pay or you can't pay enough and. You just can't do it. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, um, I guess, there's a tension between people who work in this area who maybe forego making a much higher salary if they were to go into the private sector and whatnot. Obviously, mm -hmm. a lot of clever people in, in health and health research and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then you've, so they're doing it for, you know, altruistic reasons and a lot of, you know, trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And then they're having to deal with publishers who maybe are a bit more profit focused. And yeah, it's yeah. a really funny tension, that, isn't it? <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and uh, particularly because, Health journals are really expensive. Yeah. That it really shocked me. Um, when we came out and said this is the experience we had with this journal, we had um, about eight or nine different publishing houses contact us and say, hey, we'll do a special issue with you. That's mm. fine. Um, so I met with each of them and, you know, in some cases they were like, we'll give you some waivers and some of them are like, we'll do the special issue but everyone still has to pay we have just really solved amounts. the problem that you were this. in yeah, talking yeah. about. Like, but yeah. at least we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just, I mean, the the big health journals, I can run projects mm. for the price of one publication yeah. and I'm like, I cannot justify spending money on that. No. I mean, most of the time I don't have the money anyway and that's why I have to go to lower impact journals because mm. if you want your research to get out there. So have you, uh, have you I know that you've, post something online about this previously have you actually done anything further since you've had all these all this feedback from people yeah so we um we've ended up um we're currently in the process of publishing a special collection with environmental health insights so they provided us a heap of waivers for people in low and middle income. well actually they provide complete waivers for people from low and middle income countries mm -hmm. then they offered us an extra five mm -hmm. where we could choose so you know, the focus for us has been on getting early career researchers. Um, and they those papers for that special issue are currently all in review and kind of trickling oh, through nice. the system at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you actually yeah. managed to get like a, a concrete result yeah. out of that, yeah. which is great. It would mm. yeah, be very tough to do. Oh, excellent. Yeah, okay. And is there anywhere we can point people to, um, a link or something? Yeah, yeah, for, in terms of the watch failures yeah. stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can email us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it's yeah. easy to put it in the show notes. Yeah, the show notes. but I mean the um, the the Twitter handle that we use is at fsm underscore fail. Um, there's a long story to why that's the acronym. <laughs> I'll give that's you fun. the website for um for yeah. our, in the show notes. We'll put that in yeah, the show notes. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Danny. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a great been conversation. I know. I love yeah. talking about this stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, all the best with uh, whatever you do next. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was our conversation with uh, Danny, which was really interesting, I thought. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot from that conversation. Um, and it's great to kind of share some stories and interest in things that aren't necessarily talked about quite a lot. Yeah. I don't think we will, it'll be a, a common theme on the podcast. So it is good that we got an expert in to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I think it can also be quite hard to find people within that area as well because like mm. I only know Danny I don't think I really know many other people within sanitization which is 
such a big area in public yeah. health that a lot of people don't realise. Yeah. It, it does seem to be synonymous with the developing world and, you know, we think about disease control, you know, exactly. things like cholera and stuff like that. And it hadn't even crossed my mind that um, incontinence in, in children and this sort of thing would be yeah. even an issue. You know? I had no idea. And I'm yeah. also, I'm actually also very surprised that parents don't talk about it, even in mm. high developing countries. I think that's just ridiculous because we can learn so much from each other um but yeah i had no idea that it was such a a, well it could be such a big issue for for developing countries it's really interesting (laughs) yeah no a lot lot of fascinating stuff and as we discussed in the podcast there'll be some links to various things that you can read about that danny's done and that she's doing yeah that's right um and yeah hopefully you guys enjoyed the conversation this week yeah and now craig how can our listeners contact us? There's many ways. Um, carrier pigeon is one. <laughs> um, now, if- that would be amazing. I would love to see a pigeon uh, carrying some mail for me. So if you want to, go ahead. <laughs> yep. And if you don't have a pigeon handy, then meaningofhealth.outlook.com is the email address. And on Twitter, you can tweet us through the Twitterverse yep. <laughs> at health means what. Yeah. Oh, um, I've just been watching Shit's Creek. Uh, on Netflix, and they mention uh, Twitter on there, but they call it Tweeter, Tweeter because there's like an old guy that doesn't know what Twitter is. So <laughs> please use uh, Tweeter to tweet us. That would be amazing. <laughs> and I've heard people also get confused and, and refer to it as Twitter, but then say you can tweet us. Oh, so. yeah, but that, no. No. <laughs> no, you don't call people twits. No. <laughs> that reminds me of the Roald Dahl book. <laughs> um, anyway, if you want to contact us, please do. We'd love to hear from you. We love all sorts of feedback. Um, or if you've got any guest ideas or topics that you want us to talk about, yep. that would be awesome as well. Yep, and stay tuned as we've got some outstanding guests coming up as well. That's right. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.